I believe we have sound. This is an exciting Lord's Day because we begin another journey together in a new book of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. And I've been chomping at the bit to bring you the fruits of my research in this, in this wonderful book for several, several weeks now, and, and hopefully I can bring it to you in a way that is going to make sense to you as well as excite you to live Christ to the world more aggressively, more joyfully, with a greater expectation for the better country that the Lord is preparing for us even now. So where to begin? Well, there are a number of ways that I could introduce this material to you. Obviously, this is an introduction to the book that I'm giving you. This is part one this morning. Next week will be Part two, where we will consider the author, the date, the, the writing, um, its geographical location, the genre, the recipients, and all of that, and maybe a part three, who knows. But today, I want to give you a sense of the thrust of this great work and its practical benefit to us, and I'm simply going to do this by answering really one question. This is... This is really what we're focusing on today, and that question is, why study Ecclesiastes? Why should I even bother opening to this very odd and unique piece of, uh, of, of literature that we find in the canon and, and study? Now, before I get to that, I want to take the opportunity to explain um, why we're back in the Old Testament and why Ecclesiastes, of all the books of the Old Testament, I might answer the first question, why the Old Testament, with Paul's words to the church of Ephesus. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's word. And that's my goal, really, as an under-shepherd of Christ. I want to preach to you the whole counsel. And I do that in two major ways. One way is to refer to other biblical passages all over the Bible when we're in a particular book. You know that we've done this many times over. It's inevitable that we'll have to trace a a meaning of a word or a phrase from a particular text throughout the Bible. If you want to understand Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, we wage war not according to the flesh, Well, you'll have to explore his concept of spiritual warfare in his epistles, especially Ephesians 6. Or, to understand Jesus' teaching on divorce in Matthew 19, you have to consider Deuteronomy chapter 24, which is the context for Jesus' discussion. So no matter where where our starting point is in the Bible, we will eventually glean information from the whole council. So that's great. The second way I preach the whole council is actually to make our way through the Bible one book at a time. Now, I made it my practice early on in my ministry to alternate between Old and New Testament books. You might remember, uh, or you might be thinking, at the average rate it takes you to go through a biblical book, it's unlikely that you're going to accomplish that. But yes, it's true. And uh, nevertheless, I'm sticking with my approach until the Lord takes me home. One book at a time, one from the old, one from the new, and we go back and forth like that. Now, as to the second question, now that we're in the Old Testament, why Ecclesiastes is the next Old Testament book? 
And that's a fair question. I do have a procedure that I follow when choosing a biblical book to study. Maybe you're you're not aware of that. I don't just simply flip a coin. And that procedure is based on practical considerations and not mystical ones. For example, I, I didn't lock myself in my study and pray for days and fast for days until the Lord spoke to me out of the whirlwind and said, preach Ecclesiastes. Now, I'm, I'm not being facetious here. I hear pastors actually claim this as their experience, but I don't buy it. I don't buy it for one bit, for one second, rather. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray in all our decision-making, or even in the context of what to study. We always need to ask for God's wisdom in knowing how best to proceed in, in any capacity. But in all honesty, I know for a fact that it is always God's will for me to preach any book of the Bible to you that I haven't yet. I know that. So now I already know God's will. And so at this point, it's simply a matter of choosing something, and I do that on the basis of certain practical considerations. For example, what is the spiritual condition of the church body? Some books are doctrinally weightier than others, and a pastor needs to know what the body is ready to handle. Or number two, is there something pressing, something that's upsetting the body and, and could be potentially hurtful to it, that demands our immediate attention. Maybe there's a bit of heresy that's dressed up in spiritual clothes, making its way from one church to another, and it needs to be addressed. Uh, this criterion uh, directed Jude to write his little postcard epistle, if you remember. Read the first verse, you'll see. And also Paul to the Galatians, because there was a huge problem there. Number three, there is a particular biblical concept, let's say, that we need to learn together before we bring significant change to the body. So maybe the body never practiced church discipline before. In that event, I would need to teach it before we could implement it. Or four, and finally, is the church facing a season of trial? that it needs to know how to stand firm in. It is true that there are seasons in which we live that are more conducive to studying a particular book of the Bible. And it is this last criterion that figured prominently in our last two books, or deciding on preaching through the last two books, and now Ecclesiastes. Several years ago, you remember, we started... Judges, because it captured a time in the history of God's people that I really believe parallel a period that we are enduring today, and that is a season of apostasy and compromise. Our study of that book helped us deal practically in this season. The present-day apostatizing and compromising of famous Christian personalities, that hasn't diminished, but it only worsened by the time we completed the book of Judges. So I believe that we needed to hear more on this matter, this time from the New Testament. So it was a logical transition to the book of Hebrews for our next New Testament book. 
At the completion of Hebrews, about two months ago, I believe, <clears throat> maybe a little more, our current situation still hasn't diminished, but got even worse, yeah, more severe. Body of Christ is still in a season of apostasy and compromise because many Christians today don't know how to face the pressures of their surroundings in a, in a bold and godly way. And the pressures that I refer to come from a world that is quickly becoming more and more unrecognizable to us. <clears throat> the atmosphere is hostile. It's hostile to Christianity. It's hostile to our children who are subject to harmful worldviews that have been infused into public school curricula. And the secular atmosphere is more demoralizing than ever before. The small but powerful in this country want to control and push their particular agenda on ver by various means, not the least of which is inflation, by the way, the highest it's ever been in our country, and that's quite by design. It's hard to make an honest living. Let's admit that. In fact, it's hard to be honest and get anywhere in life, right? If you have to be deceptive and crooked in a self, in, in, and selfish, uh, as selfish as those who oppress us with outrageous bills and codes and laws, then do it if you want to get ahead in life, right? That's really... Uh, what it seems like, i got to be just as deceptive as they are. Freedom of speech is under attack, which makes preaching the gospel a hate crime and makes anyone who holds to a biblical view out to be racist, sexist, xenophobic, homophobic, or a propagator of right, white supremacy. It just doesn't seem real anymore, does it? What happened to the country we knew? Freedoms and inalienable rights that are basic to what constitutes an American, they're infringed upon and even denied. So there is much to confuse and scare and sway doctrinally weak Christians in the church, much. And those who have a, any grasp on what it means to live an obedient life to Christ even begin to wonder, what's the use of submitting to government, as God says I must, when government is corrupt. Where does, it, where, where, where does being just get me when our justice system isn't or clearly has double standards of justice or clearly operates on the basis of guilt until, guilty and proved, until proven innocent instead of the other way around? Christians are supposed to contend for the truth, but doing that could wind me up in jail. Christians are supposed to be industrious, but why work so hard when there is so little to show for it? Is it worth even getting out of bed some days to go through the trouble of building my business when there's a good chance it could be shut down? You know what I'm talking about. You see this all the time. It's, it's our experience. We've all seen a great deal of injustice, direct and blatant violation of human rights, the ungodly oppressing the godly. What happens to many in the church then, you see, in a context like this, <clears throat> a context that we're facing today, is that 
they compare what they experience in life, listen very carefully, to what they know Scripture says about God and His goodness, and they see a disparity. Mm. Right? They see a disparity. For example, <clears throat> Jesus declared that He will build the church, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But this certainly doesn't ring true with what we've been experiencing. We remember in 2020 when churches were forced to shut down while liquor stores and abortion clinics were allowed to stay open. They, of course, were deemed essential businesses, you see. Jesus also told us to seek the kingdom and not to worry about basic needs, right? Matthew 6. He will provide them. But our experience has been that inflation continues to go up and make it almost impossible to live even responsibly. Infants go hungry because of baby formula shortage. We go hungry because more empty shelves in supermarkets and foodstuffs that are available, well, they continue to get smaller with their price getting higher. And many of us are unable to heat our homes and heat the water in our homes because gas prices are so exorbitant, or even take a trip. To add insult to injury, those of us who love the Lord and worship Him take a hit financially, yet the godless who are responsible for our terrible economy are living high off the hog. Once again, when those in the church experience this kind of stuff in life, and their experience doesn't match up with what they know to be true about God and his goodness, that disparity frustrates them. And it drives some to despair, others to doubt, and still others to depart the faith, fall away. And if this whole ugly context has not made you just a bit skeptical that Goodness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, then at the very least, it has left you struggling with this apparent discrepancy between what you know to be true about God and his goodness and what you're experiencing. And it may have even crossed your mind or tempted you to capitulate to worldly, ungodly ways of thinking. Liars and cheats win out in an unjust system. Hmm. Haven't tried that yet. It's better to be ruthless than kind. I get more attention that way. Meet a crooked and perverse generation by being crooked and perverse. Well, that makes sense. I believe that those in the church who are not poised to face this discrepancy may indeed wind up compromising, if not completely falling away from orthodox faith. What hope is there for them in this context? Enter Ecclesiastes. Our great and good sovereign knew what we would that we would encounter these situations and even struggle over this disparity, and he has preserved this marvelous piece of autobiography of a sage, a wise man, unquestionably a believer in Yahweh, who also struggled with the same disparity. 
with the fact with the fact that what he knew in his heart to be true about God and his goodness didn't bear out through his life experiences, or as he refers to it, everything under the sun, which is an expression he coined himself, he struggled. Struggled over this disparity. Everything under the sun, it refers to everything that takes place on the earth, from nature to the animal kingdom to human activity. And he can relate to you. And you're going to see a kindred spirit here. Now, according to his autobiography, I'm referring to Ecclesiastes, the sage who'd been around, had great means, and engaged, he engaged in a quest to search out with all wisdom what it is about life that, that will guarantee him adequate, concrete, and measurable compensation for what he puts into it during his life on earth. That's what he explored. Do I work for nothing? Do I strive to to be righteous and godly and, and do all of these things? For what? Is there a gain? In other words, is there a profit or, or any gain or any advantage to anything that anyone does under the sun here on earth? Well, his short answer to that question is no, there isn't. He says so at the beginning of his work. Let's take a look. If you are not in Ecclesiastes, take your Bible and turn there. He says in chapter 1, verse 2, this. He says, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Now, I'll tell you up front that uh, this declaration is the key to understanding Ecclesiastes. You have to understand what the sage means when he declares that everything is vanity. Vanity is the key word here. In fact, the structure of the entire book is built around it. It's built around it. There are exactly 222 verses in the Hebrew text. And that means there are 101 verses in the first section and 101 verses in in the second section, we know this to be true because in the, in the Hebrew Bible, it tells us where the midpoint is. So you know that it's how many verses are in each half. They are equal. And this word governs both halves. It is a refrain that happens all throughout the book. The sage builds his whole work around this, this word. And all the more reason why we need to know what it means. Now, the well-known English translation, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, says the preacher. This comes from the King James Version. The reason it's you, it used this translation way back in 1611 is because vanity at that time, that time primarily, primarily meant, or the primary meaning of vanity, was empty, following, um, or followed by fruitlessness. That's what that word meant back then. And that meaning actually comes closest to the way this word is used in the first half of Ecclesiastes. Some modern commentators have gravitated toward the idea of meaningless, but there is plenty in life, according to Ecclesiastes, that is not meaningless. No, it's not an issue of whether something is meaningless. The issue is there is nothing that produces anything of lasting value on this earth. 
There is nothing, there is no substantial gain to human toiling under the sun. Everything is fleeting, everything short-lived, momentary. So the sage struggles and he wrestles with his fleeting existence because of this. Maybe you have too. We find support in the text for this idea of fleeting or ephemeral. In chapter 1, right after the sage pronounces everything fleeting in verse 2, there is a rhetorical question in verse 3. He says, what advantage does a person have in all his work which he does under the sun? Now the Hebrew word translated advantage also has to do with profit and gain. So human activity is completely absurd in the sense that there is no adequate compensation to toilsome work under the sun. None whatsoever. It's fleeting. It's like a breath. It's there and then it's gone. It begs the question, then, why do we engage ourselves in toilsome work when, it's, it's not, when there's no compensation that will last our lifetime? There's also a phrase, it's, it's a chasing after the wind. This is a phrase that he coins that the sage uses. It's a great metaphor that communicates the same message. Toiling, working one's whole life amounts to nothing lasting or reliable. Nope. It's fleeting. It's momentary. It all fades away. So the sage sets about the task to prove this thesis in the first half of the book. From chapter 1 to chapter 6, verse 9, he says things like this. Chapter 1, verse 3, what advantage does a person have in all his work which he does under the sun? Chapter 3, verse 9, what benefit is there for the worker from that which he works and labors? Chapter 2, verse 11. So I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was futility and striving after the wind, and there was no benefit under the sun. Chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. He says, as he came naked from his mother's womb, this is referring to anyone, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a sickening evil. Exactly as a person is born, so he will die. What then is the advantage for him who labors for the wind? You get the idea. There is nothing of lasting value that we get from the work of our hands, no adequate compensation for our toil all our lives. Everything is fleeting, everything is ephemeral, everything is absurd. Why should I toil after so many things, a name, a reputation, and recognition, wisdom, health, wealth, justice, fairness, individual rights, respect, enjoyment, and pleasure? when none of it compensates me adequately for the work I have to do in order to maintain them? It's a great question. In case you're feeling good about yourself this morning, or maybe you think you've reached the best version of yourself to date, hear the harsh reality of Ecclesiastes. No one will remember you down the line. 
You and your accomplishments will be forgotten. Oh, yes. He says it this way, there is no remembrance of the earlier things and of the later things as well which will occur. There will be no remembrance of them among those who will come later still. Why bother leaving a legacy? Oh, and in case you're looking for significance in all that's innovative, as our younger generations do, know this, what has been, it it is what will be, and what has been done, it will be done again. So there is nothing new under the sun. While we're at it, here are some more doses of reality. Do you know that the wiser and more knowledgeable you become, the more you are sure to grieve over what you learn? Chapter 1, verse 18. Did you know that when you die, all that you acquire in your lifetime from your hard work will go to someone else who didn't work for it? Chapter 2, verse 20. Or someone who, don't, who doesn't appreciate it. How frustrating is that? Or that God has given a person riches, wealth, and honor so that his soul lacks nothing in all that he desires, yet God has not given him the opportunity to enjoy these things, but a stranger enjoys them. Wow. What a twist, cruel twist. Ecclesiastes says that toiling under the sun is not only absurd, it is a severe affliction, chapter 6, 1 and 2. Now that's, if that's not dismal enough, we find that the second half of the book, which starts at 610 and goes right to the end, carries the idea of futility over, but it is slightly nuanced. Where in the first half, toil produced nothing but that which is fleeting and unreliable. In the second half, it produces that which is elusive. It's difficult to understand and control. That's the second half. So in chapter 6, verse 12, no one can know the future, much less master it. That's true. Those who think that they can discern the future or control it, they will be utterly frustrated. And then there are situations like this one in 7.15 where a righteous person perishes in his righteousness, but a wicked person prolongs his life in his wickedness. How does that work? That doesn't seem right. But experience shows that this is often the way it is under the sun. In fact, in eight, chapter 8, verse 14, it's the experience of the sage that there are righteous people who are treated as if their deeds were wicked, and evil people who are treated as though their deeds were righteous. Hmm. I think we're experiencing some of that right now on a national level. Oh, yeah. The sage says in chapter 10, verses 5 to 7, Foolishness is set in many exalted places, while the rich sit in humble places. I've seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. None of these instances, and many more that you and I could certainly add to this list, make any sense, make no sense at all. They are past finding out. They're elusive. We can't get our hands around. We can't get a handle on this. It's too random. Makes no sense. Now, among the, the major themes in Ecclesiastes, and there are a few we're going to look at as we go through the book, one is death. 
which the sage sees as the great equalizer and further proof that the results of toiling under the sun are both fleeting and elusive. Are you ready? The wise walks in an informed way, unlike the fool who is blind to reality. But since both ultimately face the same end, an effort to live wisely is futile. That's 2, 14, and 15. Or, for the fate of the sons of mankind and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for mankind over animals, for all is futility. Chapter 3. It is the same for all, the sage says. There is, there is one fate for the righteous and or the same fate, rather, for the righteous and the wicked, for good and for the clean and the unclean, for the person who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good person is, so is the sinner. The one who swears an oath is just as the one who is afraid to swear an oath. There is an evil in everything that is done under the sun that there is one fate for everyone. Same fate. Doesn't matter what you do, who you are, what you've accomplished, whether you're a slouch or you're industrious. Same fate. It would appear that since everyone faces the same end, there is little sense for a godly person to live any differently than an ungodly person. Seems that way. Now, you might be saying at this point, how am I supposed to find hope and comfort and encouragement from this book? It doesn't even sound remotely biblical. Relax. This is not all that Ecclesiastes says. There is the rest of the story, as the late Paul Harvey used to say, and we will consider all of it in due time. But let's not underestimate the value of an honest assessment of life. All right? There is a value to this, which is certainly what this godly sage makes, an all honest assessment. In humility, we have to see life for what it is under the sun. Christians in America have a tendency to sugarcoat the harsher realities of life and make life out to be something different. Different than what it is. The sage isn't looking through rose-colored glasses. He doesn't even own a pair. No, honest assessments are important, beloved. They go a long way, certainly in our evangelism. Unbelievers need to know and understand just how barren and futile, fleeting, unreliable, and even elusive life is on this earth. No hope before they can ever appreciate what hope the gospel offers. Oh, yes. Life is hard. In fact, it's harder. It's, it's harder than it is easier. It's sad and mournful more often than it is glad and joyful. Unfair more than it is fair. Unjust more than it is just. In fact, it is absurd. It offers us no lasting value, no adequate compensation for our toiling under the sun, nor is there any rhyme or reason to it. A billionaire contracts a terminal illness in the prime of life, dies, and is robbed of any enjoyment of his success. 
A slouch, clever enough to take advantage of the welfare system, angers us. And then he hits the lottery and wins millions. Why do good things happen to bad people and why do bad things happen to good people? I'm a devout Christian, so why aren't my adult kids saved? Why were 19 children gunned down at Robb Elementary School last week? Elusive. Makes no sense. Life is hard. It is past finding out, impossible to control, elusive on the one hand and fleeting on the other, producing no lasting value or adequate compensation for all your hard work and toil under the sun. We need to make an honest observation about life and sugarcoat none of it. That's the starting point. Come to grips with reality, with life the way it is under the sun. The sage of Ecclesiastes speaks honestly. He speaks frankly and openly about it all. He says that we not only live for a relatively short time on this earth, but as we noted already, he goes out the way he came in the same way, naked and with nothing. He calls us to be realists. Let's be realists about our environment. Now, at the same time, we Christians also love God. We love his word. Do you know what that means? That means that we are informed or more informed than any other human being under the sun about life under the sun. At least we should be. We actually have a theology, a sound one. We don't let our theology blur our vision of reality. We don't practice our theology at the expense of being realists. But we realize through our theology and our faith in God's word that there is more to life than what we see and experience on earth. Oh, yes. There is another side to all that takes place under the sun. For example, as Christians who have the benefit of God's special revelation, the Bible, and know it well, I'm talking about mature believers who know their doctrine, we expect life under the sun to be exactly the way we are experiencing it. And how the sage was experiencing it, fleeting and elusive. It is no surprise. Why do we expect that? Because of the fall. Life before the fall was neither fleeting nor elusive. The fall changed everything. Creation, creation was cursed and put off kilter. Animals became afraid of human beings. People would labor by the sweat of their brow just to bring crops from a, a land that was hard. Women would have pain in childbirth. The battle of the sexes began. You might even suspect that there was a change in the literal DNA of plant and animal kingdom. How else do we explain thorns and thistles where there once were none? Or how do we explain fangs and incisors and animals that were originally vegetarians? More importantly, human beings were changed at the fall. Through disobedience, they died in their relationship with the Creator and became His enemies. And that relationship was immediately severed, which was spiritual death. Their intellect was affected, severely affected, which theologians often refer to as the noetic effects of the fall. 
And there was a death of the body, which was not immediate, but guaranteed. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God actually promises Adam and Eve that. And he will do just that. And he did, and he did promise them that in Genesis 3.15. And to show them that he had redeemed them on the basis of the future redemptive work of Jesus Christ, Messiah, the seed of the woman, he foreshadows this by shedding blood of perfect animal substitutes. We also know that as a result of the fall, a godly line and an ungodly line would run side by side, representing the ongoing struggle between good and evil that God would eventually put an end to in the work of Christ, his cross work. We also know that life under the sun is currently ruled by the evil one who propagates satanic ideology founded on a lie that we can be our own gods, which is really manifest in, in some form or fashion just as much in the religions of the world as it is in naturalism. But hear this. As chaotic as the world is because of sin, as haphazard as things are, as absurd and unpredictable and uncontrollable and beyond knowing as life under the sun is, we mustn't think that this fallen world and all that takes place here is without design. Ecclesiastes tells us God is very much behind the running of life under the sun, unfolding history day by day as he decreed it. All of it, with all its harsh realities and tragedies and triumphs, even Satan's part. The sage of Ecclesiastes has this faith and it informs him about God's goodness and justice. It doesn't come from his experience, but from his heart, the same place that our faith comes from. And he can live life through his struggles under the sun with a viewpoint and knowledge that comes from above the sun. When he faces the discrepancy between what he experiences and what he knows to be true about God and his goodness, he operates by what he believes, by faith. He says, in essence, what I've experienced on the earth is indeed absurd, but my heart knows that God is wise and just and good. Can you see the two perspectives that Ecclesiastes presents for life? Two vantage points from which we see life under the sun. They're better understood as epistemologies. And epistemology is how I know what I know to be true. One is the epistemology of experience only. On the basis of experience, this is, I, this is how I know what I know to be true. Which says my experiences tell me what's right. It's living by sight only. It has no concept of the good sovereign. It's purely secular. And that includes all religions as well. The other is an epistemology of the heart of faith. It is a godly, biblical approach to life under the sun. It comes from above the sun. 
God has revealed his word to us to help make sense of life under the sun. Sage argues that without an informed faith in God, life is completely absurd. Makes no sense. So the person characterized by the epistemology of experience only toils all his life just to produce nothing of lasting value. The result of his efforts are fleeting, unreliable, elusive, impossible to calculate or control. He is lost in every sense of that term. He has, he has to redefine life in order to make sense of it. Listen to this. He gives his own meaning to things like good and evil, morality, even marriage, even gender. But his redefinitions are not true to life, and he winds up living in a fantasy world. Life under the sun for those without God's saving grace and truth becomes their prison, their tomb, really. They are doomed to its cruel and ironic twists of fate to be terribly frustrated and helplessly lost. They live under the sun with no idea that God's work is in it and without the ability to know him personally. The sage observes, I saw every work of God. I concluded that one cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though a person laboriously seeks, he will not discover. And even if the wise person claims to know, he cannot discover. Chapter 8, verse 17. He says again in another place, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes everything. Chapter 11, verse 5. Now, it will become evident to you as we go through Ecclesiastes that the sage has the right epistemology. And he ultimately urges his son, to whom he recounts his autobiographical wisdom, according to chapter 12, to embrace. And in this way, the book presents as a positive and uplifting part of the Bible. You see, Ecclesiastes isn't just about the struggles of a sage over his experiences under the sun. There would be no encouragement, no benefit to us if that's all it was. Be much like a support group. <laughs> no, there, there, would, there would be nothing. He's just another victim of life's absurdity, just as we are. No, it's about how he triumphs over the discrepancy by faith. He champions faith. Not, he's not in conflict with it. The book really celebrates faith in God and in his word. Just when you think that all that we do in life amounts to chasing after the wind, he confronts despair with hope and absurdity with unexpected meaning. Meaning that comes from what he knows to be true from God's word. And he calls us to express faith in God's word so that we might order life in a way to make it beautiful in spite of its absurdities. You'll learn here how to reconcile your life experience on earth with what you know to be true about God and his goodness. The sage will show us in due course 
how to live by faith, which delivers us from absurdity, and how not to live by sight, which brings us much absurdity. He says, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and many and may lengthen his life, I still know that it will go it will go well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. It will not go well for the evil person, and he will not lengthen his days because he does not fear God. Again, he says, for I, I have taken all this to my heart, even to examine it all, that righteous people, wise people, that is, people of faith, and their deeds are in the hand of God. His admonition, his admonition to the godly, to you, to me, is this. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. See that your clothes are white all the time, and there is no lack of oil on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Chapter 9. I quote from Bruce Walke, renowned Old Testament scholar at this point. He says, quote, Out of the midst of this mess of uncertainty and finality, he calls us to set our hearts not on earthly vanities themselves, but on the Creator from whom we can gladly, responsibly accept the good of life with all its enjoyment for what it is, but in whom alone is the eternity, the forever, of which he has made us conscious, end quote. That's a mouthful. It is no, is it, it is no wonder that the sage ends his entire work so boldly and confidently this way. The conclusion, when everything has been heard... Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Now in closing, let me just say this. Notice his admonition to fear the Lord. That's saving faith. To keep the Lord's commandments. That's living by faith. And standing before God at the end of time. That's faith that becomes sight. I want to close our time this morning by drawing upon a, uh, a complementary New Testament truth from Romans 8, verses 28 and 29, which echoes these three aspects. Paul says that as bad as it gets on this earth, our good and sovereign Lord uses it for the good of those who have a love relationship with him to make us more like Christ. Certainly the triumphs in life, yes, but God uses by sovereign design our experiences of injustices, ironic twists of fate as they're known to the unbeliever, tragedies, all the unfairness and the crooked ways of this world that we are subject to, betrayals, oppression by godless people who take advantage of us in order to conform us to the image of his son. Our response, then, is not to faint or complain or throw our hands up in the air and say, what's the use, and lose heart in our ministry. Oh, no, but rather to receive well and humbly and thankfully by faith our lot. For we know that it comes from the hand of a merciful sovereign. We can live joyfully life under the sun because we see beyond it to life above the sun through the Son. 
Verse 29 then says that he predestined us to follow after the resurrection Christ, resurrected Christ into glory. We know then for the believer in Christ, nothing that he or she does in covenant relationship with Christ is ever absurd. Nothing. Rather, we do all for the glory of God. More to come.